Hello, podcast listeners. It's great to be back on. It seems like it's been forever since I was last on, but then again, it really wasn't. Um, Today, uh, my wife and I spent uh, time in Colonial Williamsburg, or I should say Williamsburg, Virginia, but what we like to call Colonial Williamsburg. After all, it was the colonial um, capital, is what most Virginians like to refer to it as, uh, the capital of Virginia from 1699 up until 1780. Um, but no matter how many times I've been to Williamsburg, or should I say my wife and I have been in close to 15 years of marriage, we've always learned something new. That's not only just the great part about history in general, but about uh, Colonial Williamsburg itself. Um, what a privilege it is to know that Colonial Williamsburg is only about an hour away from where we live. Uh, we ver- we are very blessed to be around so many great historic places of uh, prominent um, <clears throat> rec- prominent significance, like you know Monticello to the west, being just an hour and a half, uh, the um, Colonial uh, Triangle or what's called the Historic Triangle, being Williamsburg, Jamestown, and Yorktown all within an hour from us. Um, So this is not something that should be taken for granted. But then again, it can be very easy to do so, uh, but do whatever is necessary to try not to take it for granted. So we were in Williamsburg today, and this was um, Colonial Williamsburg's first day of uh, being back in business since um, being uh, closed down at the start of uh, the COVID-19 epidemic, or should I say pandemic. However, not all of the buildings were open. There were some that were, and we took advantage of those that were open, most notably the Governor's Palace, the Capitol, uh, the, the Weaving Shop, the Courtroom, the Magazine House, the um, what we call a farmer's market, but it's known as the Emporium, or the Emporia. Uh, so all in all, uh, we did have a good day, and we were able to make the most of what was open. We also got to go into Merchant Square. We also ate outside at a tavern known as Chownings. So what did my wife and I learn today that was um, of significant importance? Well, it is safe to I'd have to say that um, probably, you know, we learned something everywhere we went, but I would say that at the courthouse and um, at the magazine house, I would say, where we learned um, the most um, important of information. It turns out at the uh, magazine house, it's another term for um, storing your gunpowder and ammunition Basically, it's the center of um, center of military center where all of the necessities in fighting um, a war are going to be stored. Well, a soldier uh, demonstrated to us how he went about firing his rifle, and he did more than just fire his rifle. He uh, showed us how um, how he would position his rifle on his left side. And he also um, showed us how various uh, maneuvers, like if you were on the British side of, the, say, the American Revolution, most of those sh- uh, British soldiers would kneel down on one foot and fire. In other words, it's like the equivalent of being a sharpshooter. 
Bayonets, I have uh, mentioned that a great deal from uh, John Adams Under Fire, from uh, I should say Dan Abrams' book, Bayonets were mentioned quite a bit. Well, the reason why bayonets are dull, this makes sense. It's one thing when you um, load um, musket uh, powder into a rifle and get ready to uh, fire. If you do have your bayonet positioned as well, or what's called a fixed bayonet, in other words, it's not, um, it's not completely permanent, but it's fixed on to your rifle when necessary. But the reason why the bayonet is dull is because if it's the opposite and you get ready to fire into enemy lines, not only will, um, not only will you feel the effects of firing the, the, the uh, rifle itself, but your bayonet will catch on fire. That's not a, um, a good situation. So that's why um, when you are firing into the opposition, you better keep your bayonet dull because otherwise your bayonet's going to become useless. It's because it's, when you put the ammunition into the, into the top of the, of the gun, it has to be dull. It's dull so you don't get your hand cut, cut from it being sharp. Very excellent feedback, Amanda. Uh, thank you for that um, information. Uh, that um, actually is even more vital probably than what I just said a moment ago. But our uh, commentary right there, or should I say dual commentary, uh, goes hand in hand with what the um, docent or um, reenactor was interpreting to the audience uh, today outside of the uh, magazine house. Now, uh, bayonets, believe it or not, got their term from France. And, and believe it or not, I did not know this, but there is a place in France known as Bayonne, France. I did know that there was a place in New Jersey called Bayonne, New Jersey. But Bayonne, New Jer Bayonne France is where bayonets got started. And how ironic that the French were one of our um, major supporters in the American Revolution. Of course, they went to war not so much to join on our side, but to declare war against England. And of course, as most of us know, the English and the French have had a long history of not um, getting along with one another. But relations have improved with time. And of course, our relationship with England has improved dramatically. I think it's fair to say that had, if our forefathers were alive today, they would be very pleased to know just how far our relationship with our former mother country has come in the years since we fought a war against her to declare our separation. Even Queen Elizabeth, who is the longest reigning monarch in English history, um, I had read some years back, had said, at the time of the United States' 200th anniversary, or bicentennial back in 1976, Queen Elizabeth, it turns out her great-great-great-grandfather was none other than King George III. Queen Elizabeth was quoted at that time as saying something to the following extent of this. We learned uh, some very valuable lessons 
from the 13 colonies and how they rose to the occasion to say enough was enough. But she herself was very pleased to know that as time went along, just how far and how um, unique it was to know that both the United States and Great Britain could still be allies, they could still work together, even though we had separated from the mother country. Well, uh, something else I learned at the magazine house was this, is that all all cannonballs, I probably should have known it, but hey, sometimes it's good to ask the questions. Cannonballs are made from iron, and cannonballs are not of one size. You have three-pounders, six-pounders, 12-pounders, you have grape shot. In other words, you're not you're going to use can you're going to use different size cannonballs for a variety of reasons. You're not going to use uh, a 24 pounder out on an open battle out on an open field. You might use a 24 pounder to out at sea or to protect your um, what do you call rampart um, that is on high grounds that is surrounded by water. Anybody know what a rampart is? It's a defensive wall. As a matter of fact, when I think of rampart, I often think of our Star-Spangled Banner national anthem that Francis Scott Key wrote. For the, for the ramparts we watched, we're, we were so gallantly streaming. What it meant was that from the rampart, meaning from the military, from the base, from the defensive post, we watched what was going on, or he himself watched what was going on. But back to today's um, visit, we also learned about um, rifles and muskets and, what, and the differences between the two. Rifles could fire anywhere from, in terms of uh, distance from 100 yards or greater. Muskets, about 50 to 80 yards there are advantages and disadvantages between the two. A musket is a shorter range, given about 50 to 80 yards. However, you can reload quicker, whereas with a rifle, given that you can fire a longer range, it's going to take longer to reload. Even though there are advantages and disadvantages to both, um, both of those uh, guns, but the bottom line is they still got the job done in times of warfare. However, not everyone could afford to own a rifle, and I've known this for some time, but it does make sense. A rifle is going to cost more than a musket, and if one purchases a rifle, that is a lifetime investment. And usually a rifle might cost you about 12 pounds or more. For the typical middle-class family, or what we would call a middling family, they're going to own a musket. A musket might cost you about five or six um, shillings, or about six pounds, or about half of your year's uh, wages. But if you are from the landed um, gentry, or should I say from just from well-to-do um, stock, you can afford a rifle. And a rifle, yes, as good as a musket is for hunting, but a rifle is something that you are going to be able to invest long term because you're going to be using it on a very frequent basis. Well, did uh, both um, um, 
patriots and loyalists, or should I say patriots and redcoats in the American Revolution, did they use both muskets and rifles? Of course they did. The rifles, on the other hand, were perfect for um, firing long range. And, you know, people often say to themselves, and I've often said it too, why would you walk into the line of fire and start fighting? Here's the reason why. You want people, or should I say soldiers, to march together hand in hand, but by being side by side, ready to go and firing, you get a, you're more likely to get a better volley. In other words, everybody side by side when firing, you, there's a greater chance of knocking people from the opposition down. If people are scattered all all around or all about for that matter, if they're not in a perfect what you call symmetry line, and I don't know how perfect you could have been, but if you weren't in a in some form of um unison, meaning agreement with how you lined up, then you never really could get an accurate volley in terms of knocking out uh, the opposition. So it was important to have um, some form of decent symmetry so that when you were ready to go, you did you were able to achieve at least 50% of your goal in terms of um, shooting down the opposition. Now, think about this too. The British military is the best military in the world at this time. Think about it. They've, they've fought more than one war. Everybody thinks, oh, they've only fought just the American Revolution. No, they were fighting the French and Indian War on our soil. And pretty much the vast majority of British soldiers, if they haven't made the military their career, they are in the military for other reasons. For one, they've bought a commission, or two, they are trying to um, pay their debts back to society. For many of them, um, they have been released from jail or they have served some time in jail and being in the military is a way for them to stay out of further trouble. Uh, even the lowest ranks of society are in the military. And I mentioned that in uh, Dan Abrams' book, John Adams Under Fire. But it's just another good reminder when, say, going to Colonial Williamsburg the the difference in you know fighting against those who have spent years in the military versus those who say fought in the French and Indian War but never um, really made the military their uh, what do you call it uh, consistent uh, bloodline for many of our men who first started out all the only experience they had was fighting in a militia and while a militia is essential. There's a big difference between being a militiaman versus a regular. A regular is one who has seen all kinds of fighting. And as for light infantrymen, well, we learned why they're called light infantrymen. They don't carry as much um, luggage on them, let's say. They do carry the essential, to the essential necessities, but they don't carry the full nine yards. So therefore, that's why they are called light infantrymen. Today it was also referred to as Flag Day. And I learned that it was in 1777 that our provincial uh, congress established what we call Flag Day. The interpreter said that there are probably only between 30 to 50 original flags 
still in existence from the time of the American Revolution. Everybody's been under the assumption it was just one kind of flag that we used, especially after the time that we declared officially declared our independence from England. That's not true. As a matter of fact, um, if you were from New Hampshire and the regiment you were in from, say, New Hampshire, you would often use your own um, state's flag to represent who you who you um, were from, who where you were from, and what uh, your unit was representing. Matter of fact, um, other flags would represent, um, say, for example, uh, the the famous snake, Benjamin Franklin's famous uh, political cartoon of all thirteen colonies. Either the snake was um, coming apart, basically, was live free or die. In other words. We're all either in this together, or we will all have to hang together as one. So without flags, it's safe to say that there's no uh, proper identity that um, a military unit can uh, go by. Well, today at the courthouse, we uh, learned that um, that uh, going to court was one thing, but it was another thing to be a defendant and know that, hey, if you could not hire a lawyer, that you were going to have to represent yourself in court. And it was one thing to have to represent yourself in court, but if you were found guilty or before going to court, you might have been sent to the pillory. You would have faced some form of punishment, or should I say humiliation. This way the community knew what you had done. So... If you were well-to-do and could afford a lawyer, that's great. But if you knew that you couldn't afford a lawyer, guess what? You would be on your own. I think it's fair to say that there were a lot of people in those in colonial times who could not afford a lawyer. I did willingly share information with the interpreter um, about how uh, defendants were not given proper counsel until the very end of the 17th century, and I told her that information from uh, Dan Abrams's book, John Adams Under Fire. And she uh, was very uh, intrigued by what I had shared with her, but she also agreed that it made sense. Think about it. For a number of years, defendants aren't, aren't given counsel, and it's in large part because if somebody is willing to represent that defendant, then perhaps the 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 individual himself who did not commit the crime would be frowned upon for tolerating inappropriate behavior. But of course, as time goes along and as the colonies grow, it is fair to say that representation is needed when you have a larger population based off of the fact that you have more than just one colony that's already been settled in the New World or what we become to know as colonial America. And of course, uh, in seventeen in the early years of Williamsburg's existence, uh, and I'm going to say 1706, about 1705, 1706, when the first Capitol building was um, built, there was no King George of England. There was Queen Anne. So um, when you went to court, you didn't say, God save the king. You said, God save the queen. And I do believe it is safe to say that Annapolis, Maryland, was uh, is named in honor of Queen Anne. There is a county in Maryland known as Anne Arundel, which does probably have connection uh, to Queen Anne. 
So, today was a, a great day nonetheless, and what's great about, there are so many great things about Colonial Williamsburg, but one in particular, if you live in Virginia, you uh, have the option of pursuing what is called the Virginia Residence Pass. You pay once, and after that first time that you pay, it is good for the rest of the year. And given with all that's been going on right now, uh, Virginia residents, just know that you have until March of next year to enjoy your, um, your time in Williamsburg before renewing your pass, renewing the residence pass, that is. And yes, even the interpreter said that, in t- that today, right now, there is uncertainty. But then again, in the 18th century, there was uncertainty as well. I happened to stumble upon young Thomas Jefferson on Duke of Gloucester Street today. He had on a fine outfit. I even complimented his attire, and he and I even said to my wife, I said, you know, Amanda, I'd love to have what this gentleman is wearing. However, it's it would probably take a year's worth of wages. What did Mr. Young, young Thomas Jefferson say to me? He said, you know... If you're looking for a good uh, contact, talk to Colonel George Washington to establish a line of credit. And hey, it's one thing to have credit, but it's also important to know who your connections are. Because not everybody in Colonial Williamsburg could afford credit. Most people were lucky if they had um, silver that could be broken down into one-eighths, or what we would call the Spanish millet dollar. But having credit was a big deal. It's one thing to have it, but of course, if you can't pay your debts off, that's a whole other story. But nonetheless, uh, as with debts and all that, many well-to-do Virginians um, from the aristocracy of, uh, should I say, Tidewater Society, or in general, struggled to pay uh, their debts off. Most of them did die in debt. But at the same time, because of who they were, they the aristocracy and the, the gentry in Virginia were entitled to um, own as many unique uh, valuables as, there, as possible, given uh, that who they were and whom they were connected with could allow them to uh, purchase those items. A typical middle-class family isn't going to be able to afford a pitcher with elaborate uh, decorations on it. That's just what it was. However, if you are someone like uh, Martha Custis, or should I say Martha Dandridge Custis Washington, she she is going to be able to afford a fine uh, silver... um, picture with elaborate decorations. And I should say, too, that uh, Martha Dandridge Custis Washington, before she became Martha Washington, she was the wealthiest woman in Virginia. And by George Washington marrying Martha Dandridge Custis, his status improved significantly. It's also Noteworthy to note that Martha uh, Custis's father was a well-known Burgess named John Dandridge. And Patrick Henry, his second wife, was a cousin of Martha Dandridge, of Martha Dandridge Custis Washington. So the connections in Colonial Williamsburg are phenomenal. Yes, everyone knows each other, 
But when it comes to everyone knowing each other, it's those who are, say, white, Protestant, well-to-do landowners, those who have a, a say in government, not only just being a member of the House of Burgesses, serving on the Governor's Council of State, uh, those connections right there are what get you into society. If you don't have any of those connections, unfortunately, you're at the you are you can still be represented by your Burgess, but to be able to have an actual say in everyday governmental affairs is going to be very limited. Well, that, that's all for now, but I know that I will be back in touch with, with my fellow listeners here soon. Take care.